There may be some suffering that we have to face. Not only may there be some suffering that we have to face, there is a Christ-honoring way that we'll have to respond in light of that suffering. And yet, in light of that suffering and the Christ-honoring way that we have to respond, there is a task that we ultimately must stay committed to. In Acts chapter 5, verses 40 to 42, illustrate that for us. And the, the context of this passage really goes back to chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, you have the apostles Peter and John going up to the temple, and they encounter a man with a congenital disability. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they heal that man. They, they give healing to the helpless. He is not only physically helpless, but he is spiritually helpless. And by the name of Jesus Christ, he is not only physically healed, but by faith in him, he is spiritually healed. After that, the people at the temple rush toward the disciples, and they rush toward this man who has been now healed who they had encountered many times with this congenital ailment, and now he is leaping and praising God in the temple. And the Apostle Peter preaches his second message following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. When they, or when rather Peter preaches, and preaches specifically the resurrection, we are told in the opening verse, verses of chapter 4 that they are arrested. It says in chapter 4, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were disturbed at the fact that these apostles had the audacity to assume the teacher role and proclaim Jesus, but not only proclaim Jesus, proclaim resurrection, which the Sadducees rejected. They denied resurrection. So they are arrested. They are detained overnight. And then the following day, they go before the Sanhedrin, the council. That would be akin to the United States Supreme Court. The Sanhedrin are the ones who oversee the political and religious life of the nation of Israel. This is the same body of people who the Lord Jesus Christ went before and was subjected to a mock trial. And in chapter 4, we're told in verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be made known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. 
He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You see that there's no pleading for escape. There's no pleading of innocence. There's no regard for his own safety and welfare, as, there, as, um, as well as the apostle John. There is a bold declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the only Messiah by which you and the world must be saved, and you are being indicted for being responsible for crucifying your Messiah. But you too can be saved. Some spiritual boldness. What transpires is the Sanhedrin excuses them. They have a private conference. They can't dispute the healing that has taken place. And what do they do? They resort to threats and attempt at intimidation. And it says in verse 18, when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Don't speak or teach Jesus Christ or you're going to be punished. Look how Peter responds, verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They have a spiritual compulsion, and they are under divine orders. So they, what do they do? They just threaten them further, it says in verse 21. And then they release them. What happens then? They don't have a pity party. They don't abandon the mandate, the missionary mandate to make disciples of all nations. They go with, they reunite with the other believers and they have corporate prayer. And they prayer is for boldness. They ask God to give us renewed boldness amidst the threats and the opposition to the advancement of the gospel. And God answers that prayer affirmatively. It says in verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. You think God wants us to pray for boldness to proclaim Jesus Christ? Absolutely. In fact, the Apostle Paul prayed, asked the church to pray that for him in Ephesians chapter 6. You get to chapter, or at the end of chapter 4, you have this interlude that continues into chapter 5. This interlude, you, we are now see eyewitness of the early church coming together, meeting needs of one another, and then you have sin that emerges in the church in Ananias and Sapphira. You can read about that account, but they were guilty of lying to the Holy Spirit and God killed them. And the apostles continue to perform miracles and healings And then you get to the middle of somewhat of chapter 5. Look at verse 17. 
But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in jail, a public jail. So now we have the rearrest of the apostles. So brothers and sisters, I just I want to return back to this point. This passage illustrates for us that as we evangelize, as we testify to the person and work of Jesus Christ, there may be some suffering that we have to face, yet there's a Christ-honoring way to respond, and there's a task that we must be committed to. Before we jump into that, though, I want you to see one more thing. Look at verse 30. Actually, back up to verse 27. So what happens now, they're rearrested. An angel intervenes, releases them from prison, tells them, go back to the temple and keep on proclaiming Christ. The authorities come to jail thinking the apostles are still there, and they find no one. They're perplexed. And you know what happens? They're out there proclaiming Christ at the temple. And look what it says in verse 25. But someone came and reported to them, that is the council, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. I find that so comedic. They're deliberating. They're perplexed. Here comes someone interrupting their, their conversation, they're disturbed and tells them, look, you know those guys you put in, the, in jail? They're out there at the temple, the same place where you found them. So verse 27, they brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and to intend to bring this bland's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He receipts, he re, excuse me, he repeats the indictment, the charge to the religious leaders. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witness of, witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. He continues just like he did in chapter 4 when he was brought before the council the first time. He proclaims Jesus Christ. He he makes no plea for release. He just testifies to the person of Jesus Christ. How did they respond? Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were cut 
to the quick and intended to kill them. One commentator says they were being sawn asunder in their hearts. They were inflamed. They were furious. Right? That's the Holy Spirit's cutting work. Right? If you preach a biblical gospel, the Holy Spirit will honor that and cut the listener to the quick. And you, unlike chapter 2, when Peter preached his first sermon and the Bible says that they were pierced to the heart, in chapter 2, they repented. In chapter 5, they're enraged. We're reminded in verse 17, they were jealous, right? That rage was fueled by jealous, jealousy. They're jealous of Christ and his name. They're jealous of the, of the growing number of converts that are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They're jealous of the apostles and the multitudes of people that are coming to the apostles for healing. They're losing their influence amongst the populace. I'm convinced much of the opposition to Christ and Christianity is out of jealousy. Out of jealousy. Satanic jealousy. And what did they want to do? Back to verse 33. They intended to kill them. They had no basis to do it. They were innocent. They didn't have the authority to do it because only the Romans had the authority to execute someone, but that didn't mean they couldn't manipulate a crowd. Just like they incited a mob against Jesus. You look in chapter 7, you can read that on your own time, the participation of the council in murdering Stephen. And then what happens? A man named Gamaliel intervenes. And you read about that in verse 34 and following. He's a descendant of the Jewish rabbi Hillel. He is a teacher of Paul, of the law. He's a respected man, it says, a teacher. But he fell short of confessing Christ as Savior as well. But he did intervene. He ordered the apostles to be put out, and he said, don't execute these men because if it's a phony movement, God is going to suppress it. And we know God didn't suppress that movement. He fell short of confessing Christ. He had kind of a wait-and-see approach. So, brothers and sisters, I say again, there may be some suffering we'll have to face. There may be a, there's going to be a Christ-honoring way that we have to respond, and there's a task that we must be committed to. These uh, brief verses are very, very illustrative for us. I pray that they'll be encouraging. I pray by God's grace it'll further embolden us. Let's first look at how this passage illustrates that we must be ready for the possibility, if God so wills, to suffer for proclaiming Jesus Christ. We must be ready for the possibility, if God wills, to suffer for proclaiming Jesus Christ. Look at verse 40. 
They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they, that's the council, the Sanhedrin, I mentioned that already, the body of persons who were over the religious and political life of the nation of Israel, and Gamaliel had persuaded them, persuaded them not to kill the apostles. Why? Did they suddenly sympathize with the apostles in their mission? Did they feel remorseful? Did they feel that they were unjust in arresting them? No. What you have to understand, brothers and sisters, beyond the text, is that God is sovereignly intervening to ensure the progress of evangelism, the advancement of the gospel, and the multiplication of his church. When you look at chapter 8, briefly, and you see a persecution is unleashed, instigated by Saul, what happens? Look at verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered, that's the church, they went about preaching the word. So here you have God using persecution as the stimulus for evangelism. Go back to verse 40, and it says, After calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So now they bring them back in, and they inflict a two-fold intimidation effort. First, they flog them, right? They're hoping to intimidate them. They're hoping to inflict fear because they had failed previously at silencing them, and they were persuaded not to kill them. So what do they do? They beat them. They whipped them. They scourged them. This is, the, this is the first act of corporal punishment against the followers of Jesus Christ. Co- uh, flogging was commonly inflicted up- upon slaves and criminals and those who were, who were disobedient and lawbreakers, insurrectionists, and they would have received up to 39 lashes. 39 lashes, according to Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 through 3. And the the lashings would have been administered with a whip with long leather cords made of animal hide. And they would have had to have been bare of the upper part, their chest and backs exposed, and for every two whips that they receive on the front, or on the back, they receive one on the front. One-third on the front, two-thirds on the back, up to 39 lashes. You remember the Apostle Paul, he remarked on five occasions that he had received 39 lashes. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four. In fact, in Galatians six seventeen, what did he say? He said, I bear the brand marks of Christ's. So these would have perhaps left permanent blows, permanent welts on their backs and fronts as visible reminders and warnings and hopefully a deterrent from the council's perspective for preaching Christ. Verse 
And secondly, the council, they gave him an order. Look back at verse 40. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. They commanded them, they ordered them not to speak in the name. The, the name of Jesus refers to the fullness of truth concerning Christ. His person, his work, his messianic mission of salvation. Right? What did they say back in thirty in verse 31? He said, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And they said, don't ever speak in that name again. You know what that meant also? If what the apostles said was true, then that meant the religious leaders were culpable for killing their Messiah. And even if it were true, they had to suppress it. They had to suppress it. You go back to in chapter 4, they're threatened, they're warned. Verses 17 and 18, they're commanded, they're threatened further in, in, in verse 21, but what is different from the previous threats and warnings is that the council had hoped that the lashings and the beatings, the wounds that had been inflicted upon the apostles would be the final blow of intimidation. All they needed to do was look at one another's chests and backs as visible reminders of what they had been subjected to. So as we look at this passage, brothers and sisters, this, this verse, there's something that we have to realize, okay? These apostles were not shocked. They were not surprised at the suffering that they were subjected to. Not in the least. Because back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 17, when he had sent them out, this is what Jesus said, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. In the upper room, John chapter 15, verse 21, this is what he said, but all these things referring to persecutions, they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. And then the apostle Peter is going to write later to the church. First Peter chapter four, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes to you upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, right? Don't be surprised. I bear witness to the fact. Don't be surprised. I can testify to it. I was with Jesus when he said it. I was there when they inflicted it upon him, and I received it myself, and now I'm giving you this message. Why the beatings? Why the, why the hateful threats, brothers and sisters? Because Satan hates Christ and his followers. Okay? Satan hates Christ and his followers. He despises the gospel. He knows that it's God's power to save and to transform lies, lives. He knows it's God's power to rescue men and women from his grip. 
So he is seeking to do all that he can to undermine God's purposes by intimidating and eliminating believers from proclaiming it. So it didn't surprise them and it shouldn't surprise us. We've got the history book of persecution against the church of Jesus Christ. But we've got God's triumph and Satan's failures. So don't be surprised, brothers and sisters. You're going into the world with the life-saving, life-changing message of salvation, and you're going to have to inform people of their sin, that their lives are in jeopardy unless they repent and turn to Christ, and he, not them, is the only hope for their salvation. When we explain the gospel in its fullest, we're holding up a giant mirror to the world's face so that it can see its sinfulness and its need for a savior. Don't be surprised if that doesn't endear you to a lot of people. No wonder Jesus said that preaching that message may even cause a rift in your household. Remember, it's as we proclaim the gospel, the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's the conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment that can cause repentance and deliverance for those people. So be ready. Don't, we don't look to suffer. We don't incite reprisals, but nor do we avoid it for the sake of Christ. And I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm under no pretense that so-called religious liberties and freedom of religion have any restraining power against Lucifer, the god of this world, or his messengers. Only God has the power to restrain. And I'd rather prepare us and God be merciful and you not experience it than not prepare us and it happened and you wish that I did. Right? What's the worst that they can do to us? What, take our lives? Take our lives and God immediately usher us into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ where death is gain. And, and for some of us, the possibility of suffering to any degree for proclaiming Jesus Christ is utterly foreign to us. Utterly foreign. Right? Because we've adopted the false idea that we live in a so-called Christian society that really isn't Christian. And with that, we've adopted, adopted the false idea that evangelism is a protected right and suffering and, sure, suffering and persecution may not be as frequent and it may not be intense as it is in other countries, but it isn't absent. And another reason why this may be foreign to us is because some of us have chosen silence over speaking. So we've chosen silence over speaking because of the fear of man. Therefore, we're not even in any position to experience suffering. You go back to the end of verse 40, it states, they released them. They released them. All right, the council believing, they believed that the scourging was sufficient to suppress the movement. 
But more importantly, this was God controlling the situation and orchestrating their release so that the gospel might go forth, but not without suffering. So this verse illustrates, brothers and sisters, that we must be ready, if God wills, for the possibility of suffering for proclaiming Christ. But not only must we be ready for the possibility of suffering for proclaiming Christ, secondly, we must rejoice, rejoice at the privilege of suffering for the name of Christ. Look at verse 41. It says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. So they had been flogged, they had been threatened, beaten, they've got visible lacerations on their, their bodies, bloodied, treated as lawbreakers, and they exit. And they left the presence of the council, but get this, they were neither disheartened, they were neither dismayed, they were continually rejoicing continually rejoicing, repeatedly praising. You know when we see a similar account of this, the apostles praising and rejoicing in Luke 24 after Jesus' ascension, and they go out praising daily in the temple. And now they're praising daily and regularly after having been treated shamefully for the name. They're they're rejoicing. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ deemed them of being dishonored for the name of Jesus Christ, right? The name is Jesus the Messiah. And so they had suffered shame by being whipped and beaten like scoundrels, like slaves, like criminals, like insurrectionists, but they were neither dejected nor discouraged. They, They gloried. They gloried in that. They gloried in sharing the sufferings of their Savior. Wow. They rejoiced that they were considered worthy to be dishonored. It was a badge of honor for them. What an honor to be dishonored for the name of Christ. They experienced a measure of what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now they had suffered the same punishment, right? They saw their participation in Christ's suffering as a privilege. Privilege. They were honored to be dishonored for the name of Christ. Right? You, you remember in what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 22, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. You are blessed. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. You are in good company. It's no surprise that the Apostle Peter would write, again, back in 1 Peter chapter 4, 
Verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Right? You know, if you pay attention to that, there's only a few places There's only a few places, I believe it's only two, three at the most, in the New Testament where the word Christian is even mentioned. And here the Apostle Peter likens being a Christian to joyfully suffering. That's a whole lot different than Americanized Christianity today. They didn't give any thought to the public's perception of them. They only cared about how Christ perceived them. And this is where we got to get to. I don't care what people think or say about me when it comes to proclaiming Jesus Christ. Think what you want. What am I care? Who do I care about? People that have rejected him and are going to go perish in hell? I care about his name. And I care about what he thinks about me so that he can say at the last day, well done, my faithful servant. So I got a question for myself and for all of you. Do you view suffering for Christ's sake that way? Are you willing to suffer shame for the name? Would you rejoice if you were insulted, maligned, threatened, worse, physically assaulted for Jesus Christ? Or are you bothered by the possibility of being dishonored for Jesus if, if you're a person who has a, a short fuse, you're short-tempered, if you're a person who believes you're entitled to the best treatment or receiving the best customer service when you go out in public, if you're a person who has a difficult time being insulted and you believe that you have to retort and you have to respond to every insult or every gossip that's said about you as a Christian, you are going to have a difficult time being mistreated for the sake of Christ. You're not going to be an effective witness for him. No. You're going to be uncomfortable with the possibility of suffering shame for his name. So if that is you... Pray, beseech the Lord that by his grace that he will absolve you of this lofty notion that you deserve the best as his disciple. Because a disciple is what? Not above his teacher. Nobody has suffered greater injustice, insult, and personal injury in all of history than the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet no one deserves greater honor, majesty, and preeminence than him. And you can rejoice because joy in suffering rests in Christ's person and promises. Let me say that again. Joy in suffering rests in faith in Christ's person in suffering. You're going to have a difficult time rejoicing in suffering when you're focused on the suffering itself. But if you focus on the name, the name, it was Jesus himself who said he's going to the cross. Why? For the joy that is before me.
Well, this passage illustrates for us, brothers and sisters, we must be ready for the possibility of suffering, if God wills, for proclaiming Jesus Christ. It also teaches us that we must rejoice at the privilege of suffering in God, if God wills, for the name of Christ. Finally, this passage illustrates that we must resolve to continue proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. We must resolve ourselves to continue proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. Look at verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So they had been flogged. They had been ordered not to preach Christ. And they went on with renewed zeal and renewed passion to continually teach and to continually preach the good news that Christ is Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the messianic promises with renewed boldness and further fervor. That's the message they kept on proclaiming. That's what they did. That's, they had utter disregard, utter disregard for the orders, utter disregard for the abuse, and utter disregard for the shame. They gave no regard to their reputations whatsoever. This is the result of the Holy Spirit. You go back to chapter 4. And you have Peter, verse 8, filled, emboldened, empowered with the Holy Spirit, and he proclaims Christ. That's what he does. The Apostle Paul, and you don't have to turn to it, In chapter 20 of Acts, in verse 24, he says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I consider my life of no account. Look at this passage. This this brief verse just has so much in it. Just verse 42. Let's look at some things that we can glean from it. First of all, I want you to see how often they taught and preached. Verse 42. And every day, regularly, frequently, they consistently taught and preached. No disruption in their schedule whatsoever. You might say it was the same thing that happened in the, in the church in Acts chapter 8. Persecution became the renewed stimulus for evangelism. Secondly, I want you to notice the places where they taught and preached. In the temple, so public, in the, publicly, in the sacred place of prayer and worship, publicly. And privately, from house to house, right? Publicly proclaiming, 
privately in households, instructing people. Thirdly, look at the incessant nature of their preaching and teaching. They kept right on. Literally, they continually did not cease. They ignored the cease and desist order, and they persisted. They persisted. Fourthly, look at the method. Teaching, that's instructing, imparting divine truth. Same message, instructing. And then it says preaching or proclaiming, heralding, announcing the message of salvation. And fifthly, look at the person who they taught and preached. Jesus as the Christ, not Jesus a Christ, not Jesus one of several messiahs, Jesus the Christ, as Peter said, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah King. What do you get from all of that, brothers and sisters? It wasn't enough that they had been beaten and warned, okay? But upon release to continue teaching and preaching in the same name that got you arrested, in the same place that got you arrested, That's spiritual boldness. That's spiritual stubbornness in a good way. And then they go from house to house, whether it's Christian households or whether it's the households of unbelievers, influencing with the gospel of salvation so the church can continue to multiply. That's what they did, brothers and sisters. So, What's an implication we take from this? One of the things that we take from this is we cannot let the fear of man, intimidation, or even the possibility of physical retaliation discourage or silence us from proclaiming King Jesus. Heed the words words of Jesus when he told the disciples, if they don't receive the message, shake the dust off. Shake the dust off as a testimony against them. Be like the Apostle Paul, he told the Jews who resisted and blasphemed Jesus, he said, you know what, your blood be on your own hands, I'm going to the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, look, there are too many souls who desperately need Christ to be paralyzed by the rejection of a few. And you might say, well, You know, this doesn't apply to the church. This is just the apostles and the evangelists and the pastors. Wrong. Go back to chapter 8 and you see what the early church did. See what they did. You say, well, well, this only applies to severe persecution. We aren't experiencing persecution like that in America. Okay, then if that's the case, what's stopping you from preaching Christ? See, we can come up with all kinds of reasons for being disobedient. And you see this Holy Spirit persistent to be obedient to Christ, to the mandate to make disciples, and the inner compulsion that they possess, we cannot keep silent 
by what we have seen and heard. I must obey God rather than men. Yes, we, we must be ready, brothers and sisters, for the possibility of suffering for proclaiming Christ. And we must rejoice at the privilege of suffering of God's so will for proclaiming Christ. And we must be resolved to continue preaching Jesus as the Christ. The Christ. The book of Romans, chapter 5 says this in verse 3, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about persecution, and persecution proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's an encouraging passage. We exult in our tribulation because tribulation brings out perseverance, and perseverance produces character, Christ-like character for the church. Iranian Christian leader Mehdi Dibash, he spent nine years in prison for his faith, and he was murdered in 1994. And he was murdered six months after his release from prison. While he was in prison, one of his prison guards once asked him, Does Jesus Christ know that he has someone in this prison who loves him? He replied, Jesus Christ our Lord has millions of people who love him and who wish to sacrifice their lives for him. I too wish I was one of them. And then after relating this, Debaj wrote, How sweet it will be if one day my life is sacrificed for him. The report says he was released from prison. Six months later, they found his body beaten and burned. Brothers and sisters, um, there are Christians who believe that greater and more intensified persecution is imminent in America. Imminent. Just a matter of time. So until that day comes, let's be ready for the possibility because as we testify to the person and work of Jesus Christ, there may be some suffering that we have to face. There's a Christ-honoring way that we'll have to respond, and yet there's a task that we must 
be committed to. May God help us to do that by his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, such a weighty passage. Thank you for the movement of the Holy Spirit in, in the life of the apostles and in the early church. And this testimony that you have given us on the pages of Scripture. May we not just look at this as a wonderful or just encouraging story to behold, but may there further embolden us by your spirit of the work that we have yet to do. By your grace, if you so will, may we be willing to suffer for proclaiming Jesus Christ. And yet if we suffer, may we rejoice at the privilege of suffering for proclaiming him. And may we yet still be resolved to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you.